Hey there, Chip Close here, host of the Restaurant Strategy Podcast. By now, I'm sure you've heard I wrote a book. It's called The Restaurant Marketing Mindset. It comes out tomorrow. It's available online just about anywhere you get your books. So Amazon, Barnes & Noble, a quick Google search will show you where you can get it. Or if you're here in the United States, you can get it directly from me. Go to therestaurantmarketingmindset.com. Order your copy. It is out tomorrow. And make sure to come back. Do not miss this episode. It's an interview, actually an encore presentation of an interview I did way, way back in episode, I think 138, with a guy named Mike McFall. He's the author of the book Grind. He is also the co-CEO of Big B Coffee. His story is great. His perspective and experiences are great. You're going to get a ton from this episode. And it dawns on me that a bunch of you guys have just recently discovered the podcast and maybe you missed this interview. It's worth listening to again. Again, book comes out tomorrow. Go order it and make sure not to go anywhere. Great interview coming at you. There's an old saying that goes something like this. You'll only find three kinds of people. Those who see, those who will never see, and those who can see when shown. This is Restaurant Strategy, a podcast with answers for anyone who's looking. My name is Chip Close, and this is Restaurant Strategy, a podcast dedicated solely to helping you build a more profitable restaurant. Each week, I leverage my 20-plus years in the industry to help you build that more profitable and more sustainable restaurant. I also work directly with owners and operators all over the country through my group coaching program. It's a mastermind called the P3 Mastermind. The three Ps stand for profit, process, and progress. We meet every single week to help you generate consistent, predictable 20% profits. If that's something you're struggling with, if that's something you want to learn more about, then please set up a free call with me or someone from my team. Visit restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash schedule. It's a free 30-minute strategy session. Again, absolutely free. We'll get to learn more about you and your restaurant. You'll get to learn more about the program. See if you're a good fit for the program. Go check it out. Restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash schedule. As always, that link is in the show notes. Now, We all know managing costs is one of the most important parts of running a profitable restaurant, especially now. But between fluctuating vendor prices, waste, labor, and the never-ending list of tasks that demand your attention on a daily basis, it can be challenging for even the most experienced of us to manage costs well. That's where Margin Edge comes in. Margin Edge is a complete restaurant management software that automatically uses data from your POS and invoices to show you your food and labor costs in real time. Don't wait until it's too late. Margin Edge gives you tools to make decisions in the moment, like a daily P&L, price alerts on key ingredients, and real-time play costs, all without ever having to touch a spreadsheet. Take control of your costs, work more efficiently, and be more profitable. Learn more at marginedge.com chip. So my guest on today's show is Mike McFall. He's the co-CEO and co-founder of Big B Coffee. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chip. Glad to be here. I'm thrilled to have you here. We had a little pre-call a couple of weeks, I guess almost a little over a month ago now. It was a, it's a while back. We talked about a lot of really interesting stuff, and, and a lot of it I'm really excited to get to. Uh, but I want to go all the way back and start at the beginning. Uh, for people who don't know Big B Coffee, for people who don't know you, I really want to talk about uh, what is Big B Coffee. It started, what, in the mid-'90s, but you've grown it now to hundreds of locations. So so let's go all the way back and, and ground people, give people some context. Talk to me about... Uh, starting the company, what made you start the company? Well, you know, I have a I have a unique 
uh, founder's story in that um, my, my business partner founded our very first coffee shop. Uh, he had extensive experience in the restaurant uh, space, uh, and he uh, decided that uh, coffee was going to be his next venture after he sold a, a restaurant that he owned. I started as a barista in that first store, and so I, I was a I was a minimum wage barista. I was uh, at a, on a project at the university, a research project at the university, and so I worked at the coffee shop from six a.m. till two p.m. Monday through Friday, and and post uh, post two p.m. I'd go over to my office at the university and, and work on my research, and and then really what happened to me is I fell in love with the business. I fell in love with the, the industry. Uh, I, I always kind of knew hospitality was in my blood, but I, I guess I hadn't refined that thinking at that point. But when I realized that I love going to work and I loved making people happy, and when people would walk in the door, I, I, I truly enjoyed sending them on their way in their day uh, with, you know, a little bit of a skip in their step, a, a little bit more positive energy. I, I, I really fell in love with it. And that that's the fundamental reason I'm in the business. And, and then, you know, so uh, how it went from there was my business partner was interested in having me take more responsibility in our company as he went to open his second store, uh, wanted me to become a manager. I was tracking down a different path. I was headed back to graduate school. And so, uh, you know, I, I just declined, uh, but that started a conversation between the two of us. Um, and it was in that conversation where we, we agreed to, on a handshake, uh, really in, in one conversation, we agreed to become business partners and, and form a new entity. That entity would be the entity that we would utilize to grow the brand and grow the concept. Uh, we did all that on a handshake for a number of years until we, we actually formalized it. Uh, and that was the start of, of the company. So what was the trajectory of your life going to be if you had pursued what you were there in school to do versus this? Can you even think back there? Oh, absolutely. Cause you know, I think about that often. I mean, I, I, what I was doing, I was working on a really interesting research project. It had to do with remote learning. So the Michigan state university had different campuses set up and they were teaching via satellite TV and, and they were researching the results. They've been doing that for about a decade at that point, And they were researching the results. What were the students doing that were in remote campuses versus the students that were, uh, you know, at, in East Lansing. And so, you know, it was pretty forward. Uh, so it was a pretty forward thinking project yeah. and, and I was going to get published, uh, with, with the professor I was working on all this stuff with. And, 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 you know, I pretty much was going to have my hand pick of graduate schools that, yeah, based on, on, on my experience and with him and his recommendation. So I, I was probably going to become an academic, uh, really is where I was going to end up. Uh, and you know, I, I never, you know, the entrepreneurial, uh, well, it's not like I was a kid who, when I was, you know, 15 years old, I was passionate about being an entrepreneur. That wasn't my thing. I was an athlete, unfortunately, not a very good one <laughs> or maybe fortunately. Right. Like, right. uh, but, but, uh, and then, you know, I just really, I got involved in the, the coffee business and I, I frankly, I just fell in love with it, you know, and, so, and you know, like when you show up to work yeah. and you love being there, you yeah. know, right. Yeah. Yeah. So then, but tell me though, so because so you start, as a barista, you're making coffee, you're making people happy. That's a pretty easy transaction. You're, you know, uh, craft is involved there, right? You got to make it the right way. You got to, you know, make the foam the right way. You've got to, you know, all of that. Um, but then the switch to entrepreneurial minded. So what do you think, what about your personality, you know, lent itself to that? Or, you know, what did you have that others didn't have? Or, or how did you find that? Maybe that's maybe a better question. 
I'm not sure if this answer answers the question. So if it doesn't, you know, uh, I'll, you know, you can, you can dive in deeper, but <laughs> you know, I, I frankly, I, I've never really had an issue around like, am I going to be able to support myself? Am I going to be able to put my kids through college? Am I going to be able to retire? I've never really worried about that stuff in, in my life. And, and really what my life is, is a pursuit of doing interesting things. And so, so, uh, and it had been that way all along growing up. I, I did, I had some pretty unique, interesting experiences as a kid. I had a really unique college experience. And, and then all of a sudden this really felt interesting, like growing a business, growing a brand in a space that I loved was really interesting. And, and, and so I dove into it with the idea that this is going to be an interesting uh, proposition. This is going to be something that I, I'm going to be fascinated to do. And then, you know, I think pretty quickly we settled in on the franchise business model. And, and that has really, I mean, that business model really fits well with my approach to business and the world, because I do believe in my inner core, I'm a teacher right? And, and in many ways, that's what the franchise business model is, is, is you take people that have, that are bright people that have a lot of experience, but they might not know your, your business, your space. And so you, you right. educate them on it. And then you bring them a lot of other value, I hope as well, in terms of, you know, managing a business and so on. And so that, that's really how I ended up here. And, you know, here I am 26 years later and, I still wake up every day and life's interesting. I mean, life's more interesting today than it ever has been uh, in relation yeah. to my professional career. Yeah. Well, and you guys have, uh, have evolved the company in uh, really interesting ways, which we will get to. I don't want to put the cart before the horse because I want to go back. So there was one unit. You take that over to manage it so that your partner can go open the second unit, right? That's, that's how that started. No. So I, I became the assistant manager of the first unit. Yeah. Uh, uh, and then um, I was uh, hired to be the general manager of the second unit. Okay. So I went in knowing that I was going to be opening this second store. And that's really what was intriguing to me because uh, the, the store wasn't um, we, we, I, we did have a property. I think we had the property secure, but I was involved in all of the build out the design, uh, and, and then opening it. And that, that, again, that was interesting, right? Yeah, that was sure. uh, a cool project. And so then I became the general manager of store number two. So then you were just talking about the franchise model a little while ago. So when did you guys, how much further did you grow before you switched over to this franchise model? We didn't. Right. So, so what happened was we were pursuing a bunch of different pathways. Uh, you know, I was out trying to raise some money to build stores. Uh, you know, Bob, Bob was as well. And, uh, and, and really, uh, it's pretty simple and fundamental. We started getting a lot of phone calls of people asking us where we were located, where were the headquarters, uh, were we a franchise, they were interested in franchising and so on. And, you know, you're, here we are, we're this two unit upstart. Yeah. Uh, it didn't take too many of those phone calls for us to look at each other and go, what's this franchising thing all about? Yeah. Right. And we were really fortunate to have a woman in town by the name of Mary Ellen Sheets, um, the, the, co uh, the founder of two men in a truck, uh, the, the moving company. Sure. Uh, and you know, she, she, you know, I look back on that now and I, I, 
it <laughs> it's really cool to think about going to sit down with her and just we just started asking her a million questions about franchising she was really a huge proponent of the franchise business model uh and then obviously that helped us and she gave us our attorney uh which is her attorney and we still work with him today uh this this many years later um and you know interestingly they just sold last week uh which is kind of a a a uh, big part of uh, our history is two men in a yeah. truck and, and the family just sold last week. But so that's how we got into franchising was, was uh, that there was this demand and, and, you know, we, we, we saw it, we took advantage of it and we pursued franchising and then we just became students of franchising and yep. trying to learn as much as we could. So then what did you learn then in those early periods? What, what did you think it was versus what did it end up being? And, and <laughs> talk to me about that quick education. <laughs> so what did I think it was? What a great question. Um, so at that point, you know, I thought it was more of a licensing arrangement. I, I thought that people would come, they would sign the contract and they would take your concept and they would build it and they would operate it and they would pay you a royalty. I, what I didn't know was there's, there's a, there's a really dynamic relationship there between the, the franchisee and the franchisor and really between that person, that owner, that franchise owner and my partner and I. And so, you know, you become one part coach, you know, one part manager, one part uh, mentor. You, you really, to be successful in franchising, you absolutely have to deeply care about the person that's involved and what they're going through and supporting them and in whatever way they need to be supported. Right. And that, and that's different for everybody. And that is one of those things that you cannot predict. Right. Like I wouldn't have known. I mean, somebody comes into our world and you know, they might have a, a, a real strong background in real estate. So in the real estate process, they don't even call us. <laughs> right. <laughs> but then you get into, you get into, you know, maybe the marketing side of it. Right. And, and they have no idea. And so all of a sudden now you're into a, a really deep conversation and educating them around marketing. And, and so, you know, that, that to me, uh, I guess I, I never, I didn't think about it in advance that it's a really, really intimate relationship. I mean, these people have, are investing a huge part of their life savings. They're really anxious and stressed out as they should be. And you're there to support them. Uh, and you're, you know, that's your whole role and, and no two relationships are the same. Yeah, for sure. So what makes, uh, I'm going to ask this two sides of the same question. What are the red flags when somebody comes to you and you go, Oh, I'm observing this behavior or that you don't have the right mindset for this you're not going to succeed versus when you see like when you see somebody that's a great fit like what makes a great franchisee or what's the the right mindset to come into it yeah so you know to me whenever somebody asks me how much money they're going to make it's a red flag now most people are curious of course right and 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 there are ways that you figure that out in a franchise business model and and you know, when, when they ask me directly, my response is always, you know, I, I can't answer that question. I mean, franchising, there's, there's laws around what I can talk to you about and what I can't talk to you about. We do do a financial disclosure. That's, that's it that you have to use that financial disclosure and you have to run with that. Right. And so, but when somebody's kind of obsessed around how much money they're going to make, what the return is going to be. And then that's really the driving question. Um, that's always a bit of a red flag. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it's, uh, and then what makes a great franchisee is, is somebody who is 
enthusiastic and passionate about building a business and, and what that's going to do for them from a lifestyle perspective, uh, someone who's passionate about being a significant member of the community, right? That they, they're really ready to give back to the community, right? And, and when you have that, when, when somebody has that and they have that passion and the enthusiasm around, the, around building a business, that, then they plug in and they do what they need to do in order to make it successful. Whereas yeah. somebody that's looking at it as a financial a financial transaction or a financial return, you know, all of a sudden maybe they don't have the, what it takes to get it done. Right. Uh, because, uh, because, because why? Because there's, there's a time commitment. There are, there are other resources beyond just the, the financial that go into it or. Well, yeah. Anybody that's done it, uh, I think knows, uh, that it, there's a whole bunch of blood, sweat and tears involved. Yep. And, and so it's, and it's way harder. I've never one time had a franchise owner say to me, boy, that was easier than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> right. And so opening a restaurant is, it's a full commitment. Yeah. And, and if your motivation is to make money and not, you don't, you don't have the passion to see it through. Right. Yeah. And then usually it's, uh, this is going to sound weird, but usually it's the sort of high net worth people that are interested in what the return is going to be. Yeah. And then those are the people that can walk away easily too. Right. right I don't right, like right, right. high net worth franchise owners, right? Because <laughs> they can close up shop and move on and sure no one likes to lose that kind of money, but it's not like it's going to impact their lifestyle or, or whatever. Well, that's the really interesting thing about the restaurant industry. We always joke around that we operate with razor thin profit margins, but there are always more effective, more efficient ways to earn a return on your money uh, as evidenced by the last 18 months in the stock market, right? Why would they invest in a restaurant uh, when the return is so uh, so limited uh, and so risky when they could just go uh, invest it even in just index funds and make, you know, 10, 15, 20% w without even having to do anything. You just kind of check on it once a while. Right. Well, it goes back to why I'm here. It, it's you love making people happy. And, yep. and if, if that is, you know, being in the restaurant business, the hospitality industry, like that, if that isn't, if that isn't, if that doesn't get you, your motor going, you know, I, yeah, I think it's probably a better bet to not get involved in a restaurant. Yeah. So talk to me about the brand itself. Um, because I, I don't know, I've never been to a Big B Coffee. Um, talk to me about what sets you guys apart from now all of the other brands out there. Well, I mean, purely uh, our brand is designed to cater to the everyman, the 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 middle America, right? Uh, that's that's what we're trying to do, and we want to bring an extraordinary product, and our our product is um, you know differentiates itself. It does, uh, and we want to bring that product to maybe what you might call middle America, right? And you know, Starbucks is a fairly pretentious brand. Uh, and I mean, their product is good. And, 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 you know, I, I, I go to Starbucks when I don't have the opportunity to go to a big B. Um, but they are, they're a pretentious brand. Right. And so, uh, and then, you know, when you look at the other major players in our space, say, take, take uh, McDonald's, Dunkin' Donuts, uh, you know, their product is inferior. Right. And so what we're doing is, is we're trying to live in, in the space right in between these major behemoths. Right. That uh, and, and, and really um, bring a product to uh, to middle America that isn't doesn't have it as much as in, in certain places. I mean, you know, you go to downtown Chicago and, yeah, there's there's a Starbucks every block and 
and there should be, <laughs> you right. know, I mean, Starbucks should be there. And, but, you know, you go into um, some small town in Michigan and, and, and there's no Starbucks and, and their only option is maybe McDonald's. And then we enter the market and, and people are like giddy yeah. uh, with excitement to be able to get the product. So talk to me about why your brand caught on early. So you, you were saying you're getting all these calls and you hadn't been thinking about franchising, but you get enough calls and you go, wait a minute, maybe we should look into this franchising thing. What is it about your concept or your brand um, that that got people so excited? And I'm asking this for partially a, a selfish reason on on behalf of the uh, the listeners, because I'm sure they're thinking like, like what makes a brand uh, franchisable or like, like, could my brand do it? Like, like what was what was baked into the pie? What was in the recipe that that made it work? Well, our number one operating uh, principle is uh, we're a systems driven company. And, you know, we we were fanatical about developing the system. And my partner came out of the high volume restaurant business. And so he understood how to run an extraordinarily high volume kitchen. And so we brought that thinking and that experience to the espresso bar. And so what I would say is very early on, what set us apart was the operational efficiency of our espresso bar, of our kitchen. You know, we, we run kitchens that happen to serve a, a cup of coffee or a latte, right? So that's, that's point one. And, you know, and, and to be a franchise, you have to hand off a tight system to your franchise owner. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so, um, we had that, we believe in it. We, we've been preaching that for 25 years, right. That, that, that's what makes us better. Uh, and, but the other piece, and, and so we have this thing called position priorities. It is a uh, prioritization tool for our staff, right. Okay. And it is, it's airtight. Right. Like, and when you show up to work at a Big B Coffee as a barista, you know exactly what you're supposed to be doing when your time is perfectly prioritized and you show up and you just do that over and over and over again. Right. Now, the, the issue with that, though, was is that somebody could show up to work and execute that and still be a miserable employee if they if they didn't come to us on that given day with the right attitude. And so then what we did is we wrote uh, our operating philosophy and that it's called PERC P E R C and it's, it's an acronym uh, for four statements. And those four statements are what we communicate to our baristas that state, if you do these four things, you don't have to worry about whether you're successful or not because you will be right. So they show up, they know exactly what they're supposed to uh, do every minute they're in the store, every, every minute they're working. But then they also know what our expect our clear expectation is from an attitudinal perspective. And to me, that's the backbone of our business, right? Everything else is tertiary, everything else. So when, when, when we open a store, uh, the customer walks in, I'm very confident that that customer is going to be taken care of, right? And, and they're going to have a, a, we always say that the interaction needs to be one where the customer leaves and wants to come back more often. Secondly, tell somebody else about us or third brings a friend back in. And that, that is, that is uh, the, the bar with which we operate is that every transaction has to be that way. So then how do you, um, how do you activate that? How do you make that? So, 
talk about it constantly you know i i i do a whole thing uh at our um, you know with prospective uh, franchise owners where i talk about that the two most powerful systems in our in our world are position priorities and perk and i go into a you know pretty detailed uh a presentation around that and and i promise them that when they're two years in they are going to be so sick of hearing about perk and position priorities, right? Because if somebody calls me and they're struggling with the business, let's say 24 months out, I'm going to start talking about perk and position priorities. Are they following the fundamentals? And, and sometimes they'll get frustrated with me, right? Because it's the same answer, right? It's the fundamentals. Yeah. And so when, if, and when they get frustrated with me, my answer at that point is always, if I gave you a different answer today, 24 months later, you should show up and yeah. punch me in the nose, right? Like th <laughs> this is what will make you successful. And so, I mean, our business is communicating, getting through to the barista perk and position priorities. And we do it and we've been doing it for 25 years. We still do it today. So talk to me because I'm really curious. What is this perk philosophy? Can you share it? Sure. Yeah. P and perk is perception by customers that we will respect their time and move them as quickly as possible. And the key there is, is that we're a convenience-based business, right? So when somebody shows up, they have got to perceive that we're doing everything we can to get them out of the door as quickly as we possibly can. Okay. And the, 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 the word that's important there is perception. Yep. And so that's how the barista needs to act. They need to make sure that that customer perceives they're trying as hard as they can. Sometimes in our business, all of our products are made to order. Sometimes in our business, transactions can take longer than we'd want them to. Right. But as long as that customer perceives your effort, your energy to get them out of the door as quickly as possible, generally speaking, they're going to be OK with it. Right. Yeah. Uh, e, E and perk. Every customer leaves the store in a better mood than when they arrived. And, and that is that is your job. And we call this the rule that breaks all rules. No matter what happens, that customer has to leave the store in a better mood than when they came in. And a polite smile and the perfect cup of coffee is not enough. Because they walk in, they expect you to have a polite smile, right? And they expect the, the drink they ordered. So you have to do something above and beyond that, right? In, in order to engage them so yeah. that they, okay, so that's E. R is recognize the customer as an individual. So we have a high frequency rate in our business. We can see people two, three, five times a week, right? Yeah. So, so you need to get to know them, right? And, and it's not hard, <laughs> you know, but, but we expect you as a barista to get to know them, get to know their kids' names, get to know the, where they went to college, where they grew up, you know, uh, what their favorite pastime is and so on. And, and we need to treat them like an individual human being, right? And, and, and that, um, so that, that's our, and then C is consistently produce a high quality beverage. And all that means is follow the procedures. Right. Yep. Your job is your job is to be committed to following the procedures in the store. And so that's perk. Yeah. So then I want to go back to, you know, the E. Then how do you exceed the guest expectations? Right. If they're coming in and uh, and they're expecting to get the drink they ordered and a pleasant smile, how do you empower employees um, to, to go extra? What are what are some examples of that? Well, I mean, I I would uh, my personal approach uh, was always to like. I'd make jokes or I'd, I'd make fun of them. You know, like one of my standard lines was, boy, that that's a good looking tie. You didn't pick that out yourself. Did you <laughs> Right, <laughs> stuff, stuff like that? But you know, uh, it's, it's also, uh, you know, somebody walks in uh, today, they mentioned they're on their way to their granddaughter's soccer game. And then the next day they walk in 
Hey, how was your granddaughter's soccer game? Yep. Right. Like the, the, it's just this, this sort of, you know, what, what would you do if your grandmother walked into your kitchen? How would you treat her? What, how would that engagement go? Right. And, and so you wouldn't just take her order, make whatever she wants. And you would be interacting with her. You'd be asking her how she's doing. You'd be, you know, talking to her about her day. You know, what does she have coming up that she's looking forward to? And, and so that it's, it is, uh, it's, it's really about hospitality. That one is about hospitality. Yep. For sure. I mean, that is, that's the definition I was given 22 years ago, right? What is hospitality? It's exceeding the guest expectations, um, which forces you to really think about the expectations. Like, well, what are people, what do people think they're getting, right? This is at heart, I'm a marketer. And so much of that is about, you know, that brand promise, understanding like, like, what are you promising to the, the consumer before they become a consumer? Because I promise to give you a great smile, quick service, and a great cup of coffee. So great. So then they, they come in, and, they, and they're going to judge you on the way out and say, did I, uh, did I get the things that were promised to me? So whatever you promise, and then how do you So yeah, not only did I get that, but I also got, you know, and we can answer that. We can solve that in a, in a bunch of different ways. But um, exceeding the guest expectations, it's like just hammered in. It's like, it's like the foundation of like, like where I stand every time I, I do my job, every time I think about doing my job. Yeah. Yeah. There, you know, I've, there's, there's great stories in our history. You know, one was we had a guy that came into our store every single day and, you know, he was complaining cause he had to get the oil changed in his truck, you know, and, and, and he was just, you know, sour about having to get the oil changed in his truck. And so I was so excited cause I went back, I went, you know, 90 days out, I circled the date and I put Jim oil change. You know, <laughs> I couldn't wait for that day, you know, and then Jim walked in and I'm like, Jim, it's been 90 days. Are you, you know, you, you got to get your oil changed in your yeah. truck. You know, he, he couldn't believe it. Hey, I remembered him, but, but that, that's just, you know, to me, I always found that stuff fun. Right. Yeah, so how do you make that? So again, this is back to that actionable thing because, you know, I spent a lot of time talking to operators of all different restaurants, all different level of concepts. Uh, and you know, people love to say to me like, Oh, it's all about data. Now it's all about data. Now I said, it's not about data. Now it was about data. 25 years ago. We have no lack of data. We've been doing it. Maitre d's have been touching tables and shaking hands at the front. Managers have been, you know, uh, wine directors have been helping people. You know what they're drinking. You know what they're celebrating. You know, they're celebrating their wife's birthday. All you do is write it down. Say Audrey's birthday is on this date. We, we have no lack of data. It's something that we excel at in the hospitality industry because our transactions last much longer than most other transactions even yours which are pretty quick they last three or four minutes and think about how fast a a transaction is now on your phone right right and and we're nameless faceless we're just transaction numbers on on amazon right but we have the opportunity um, to affect that what is lacking and i think what now people are starting to realize is that we've got tons of data we just don't have the systems or the the opportunities uh, to put that data uh, into play. What do we do? We know it's their birthday. So I always ask this when I, you know, when I meet with operators. So what do you, you know, I always love to do this. You know, I ask a maitre d'. I said, oh, it's, the, it's that per- person's birthday. You know, wh- what did you do? And they said, well, and they always look really proud and they get a big smile and say, when they come in, I'm going to print out a chit and I will give that to the server and the server will know it's their birthday. And we always put a candle in their dessert. I said, so two weeks ago, that guy made the reservation and told you this is his once a year day. And you didn't do anything in those two weeks. And you're going to give them the thing. And they're going to be here for two hours. You're not going to do anything. And then you're going to put a candle in the, at the end. As I talk about a, a missed opportunity to just be a, a good human being, 
aside from the fact there's an opportunity there to uh, to drive revenue, I, I, I firmly believe, to show them a better experience. I always make the joke, you know, what happens if you call that, you know, that person makes the reservation and you call them the next day and say, you know, uh, you know, hey, Joe, I just saw that you uh, made a reservation to join us in two weeks. We can't wait to have you. I just wanted to ask you, we offer a 18-course tasting menu. It's not available on the menu. We only do one a night, and we wanted to know, because it's your birthday, would you like to do this? And it's for two, three X what the normal, uh, you know, per head cost is. Well, somebody goes, wow, it is my once a year day and I really want to celebrate. Number two, I can't believe they went to the effort. Number three, there's something exclusive that I get access to, right? Like there, there's an opportunity to, again, drive more revenue, create a better guest experience and a memorable experience. I just, again, we have the data. What are we doing with the data? Yeah, I, I mean, that is, you know, we, we have, you know, we do... 70 80,000 transactions a day and and you know that it's it's pretty consistently on my mind about how we're we're we are uh transferring this this need for hospitality or desire for hospitality i think you know once the fundamentals are taken care of so first of all you have to have the fundamentals they have to have the standard experience that they're expecting. Okay, so we, we agree on that. But then what what I really want is I want that barista to be themselves. And I want them to relax and I want them to engage as if it's their friend walking in the door, right? And that that takes time and it takes coaching, right? And and you have to give them permission, right? And and yeah. we we want them to be a little bit silly or, you know, in our business, that's, that's okay. You know, we want, and so, you know, in our, one of the, one of the things that we do and that <laughs> this might be too simple, but in the interview process, we'll sit and we say, please make conversation with me for one minute. <laughs> and then you just, you clam up. There are people that are natural at that. There are people that are good yeah. at that. They make that happen. It's no big deal for them. They start asking questions and they roll right through the minute like it like it was easy. But there are people that clam up and can't do it. Right. You know, and so that's just a, a little a little tiny trick that we use uh, in our interview yeah. process to see what their their capability for engagement is. Today's episode of Restaurant Strategy is also brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a team management platform built specifically for restaurants. Great restaurants are built by great teams, and Seven Shifts is your secret weapon to better understand your restaurant, to hit labor targets, and to keep your entire team connected. With drag-and-drop scheduling, in-app communication, task management, tip management, and more, it makes restaurant work a lot easier. From back of house to front of house, managers, franchise owners, and larger corporate teams, Seven Shifts has benefits at every single level. Plus, it integrates with the other systems your restaurant already uses, like POS and payroll. Turn your team into your competitive advantage. Restaurant Strategy podcast listeners get three months absolutely free. Get started at sevenshifts.com slash restaurant strategy. That's the number seven, S-H-I-F-T ts.com slash restaurant strategy to get three months free and join over 30,000 restaurants using seven shifts today. As always, you'll find that link in the show notes. So armed with that, they go through the interviews. Let's say they got three people and they got to hire somebody today and none of them are very good. How do they coach for that? How do you train for that or manage for that? Well, I used to do topic of the day 
it, it just seems so silly and fundamental, right? But I would, you know, I'm going to date myself. I'll go back to, you know, I'd open up the USA Today newspaper and I'd find some yeah. article that, you know, wasn't going to be offensive to anybody. And I would ask the barista to read that article and then use that article as topic of the day. So engage every single, every single customer in that topic. And here's what happens. Once you've had, <clears throat> excuse me, seven, eight, ten conversations with seven, eight, ten different people on one topic, you're becoming an expert in that topic, yeah. right? So yep. then once you start to feel that, you have confidence, and then it gives you confidence to engage, right? So that was yep. a, uh, something tactical that, that we would do, and, and it worked beautifully. Well, see, here's the beauty of it, right? So the podcast is called Restaurant Strategy, and I, and I firmly do believe that, that a strategic approach is most important. You need a big picture thinking. You need the fundamental, all of the, the stuff. Uh, but then I, that's what I'm curious about, though, because the other piece to it is that uh, tactically, how do you execute on that? I love that. So now I, I want to fast forward just a little bit because you guys grew and grew and grew. And over the course of 25 years, now you've got, what, 260-some-odd units all across the country. Where are you guys pretty much based well i mean we're still primarily michigan we're primarily the 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 what the great lake states so okay. so any state that touches a great lake that's that is our market right and okay. so 95 percent of our stores are right there and then we have we have a, a nice presence in charleston south carolina uh okay. you know we've we've uh we've got stores in we've got a store in new jersey uh we're working on stores in north carolina uh you know we've opened a store in north carolina uh, we have a store in florida um, and you know, Idaho and Arizona and so on. So, so, but, but still, I mean, and this has been tactical, right. To, to keep our, our core geography tight and really build our brand. So we're not, we don't have weaknesses. Well, I shouldn't say we don't have weaknesses, but we're as strong as we possibly can be in our core market. And then that gives us the strength to expand. So then talk to me about this, and this is merely just my curiosity. How do you make the decisions then when to expand out of that core market and where you would go into? How did you begin to, to figure that out? Well, you know, in franchising, you have to have a franchise owner that's interested in taking you somewhere. So that's how it works. So typically we would transplant people out of Michigan. Right. So, you know, uh, they they... they love us they know us they're a customer and they want to go build the brand in another marketplace and so okay. they they go do that right that that's typically how it works early in franchising um we're starting to get quite a bit more traction around people just you know re learning about us researching us and then wanting to take us to their market uh, where they exist yeah i mean it makes sense that you you know that you come here you have coffee you know, a couple times a week and you start going hey there's not one of these in my, I only get this when I go to work, but there's not one in my town. And right. so that's why I'm curious, Florida, South Carolina, North Carolina, people aren't going to, you know, unless they're visiting the university or, you know, have some reason to be up in, in Michigan. Um, so it just grows naturally. Are you making a more um, deliberate attempt now to expand or are you still keeping it just in your core? No, we're still staying somewhat limited. Um, you know, we'll, we'll look at any marketplace, uh, but that doesn't mean we're going to do it. And, you know, a lot of that has to do with the, the specifics of that prospective franchise owner and, and our belief in them and whether we believe that they can, they've got what it takes to pioneer a brand. And by the way, pioneering a brand is a whole different proposition than opening a, a brand that, that people already know. Talk to me about that. So what, I mean, obviously we know this on the surface, but what, what specifically prompted you to say that? I mean, 
talk to me about the differences between franchising when so much is being given to you and and, and inventing something, crafting something. Well, you know, a, a franchise owner today that takes us to a new market, they're not really inventing it. I mean, they they are getting a really solid system. Uh, they've got a great menu that's been vetted for 25 years. Uh, they, you know, they have a lot that, that they wouldn't, that they don't have to invent, but the, the hard part is to get people to pay attention and care about your brand, this new brand. Why should they care? And, and frankly, nobody does. No. And you've got to, you've got to go in knowing that. I love right? that. Like when you, <laughs> nobody cares. And so you have to be extraordinary in your service level and in your engagement and your community involvement and so on in order to get people to pay attention to you. And so, you know, it's the rare brand that takes off like wildfire and doesn't, doesn't take an enormous amount of effort and energy when you're pioneering a market. It is hard. I mean, you know, you, when somebody walks in your store, uh, you should be honored that they're walking in yeah. there. Yeah. It's one of the big things that I'm excited about post pandemic because pre pandemic, you got a lot of this, like you should be lucky to get here to be here. You should be lucky to have gotten this reservation. And I was getting so tired. I live in New York City. And so there are no shortage of, you know, special restaurants, nice restaurants, trendy restaurants. And I was getting so tired of that energy. It's like, no, no, no. You should be lucky that I chose to spend my money here rather than the other 50,000 places there. Talk to me about when you enter a new market. We can use maybe Charleston as an example. Um, When you opened your first place there, what were some of the marketing challenges you had there? So if you had the systems, you had the brand, you knew that it worked. It was just about introducing the brand to a new market. And I say that, I say just, but it's not just, it's a a big lift. So talk to me about how you guys did that. Well, so repetition is it. I mean, you you have to touch somebody with your brand. I mean, so, so I read sometime, you know, and I, I don't know if this is true. I'll say it anyway. And, and you or listeners can decide whether, but I remember (laughs) it. I remember a number that it takes 43 impressions for the average brand to enter the consciousness of the consumer. And, and so think of that, you've got to touch them 43 times with your brand. And so, you know, that is a, that's a daunting, daunting figure, but then also the best and most powerful way to, to attract a new customer is through, uh, your, your, somebody that walks in your door, providing that experience where they walk out and they tell somebody about you. So if, if your best friend calls you up and says, oh my gosh, I went to the new restaurant a couple blocks over, holy smokes, was that place great? You really should try it, right? The likelihood yep. that you're going to try that is very high because yep. you're always looking for the new thing. You always want totally. to. Try. And so, you know, when, when our customers leave, what we need is, is we need them standing around the water cooler at the office saying, have you tried that new Bigby coffee at the corner of X and Y? I went in, this girl was so sweet to me. Can you believe what she, and, and then talking about it, right? But see, yep. that's, that goes back to that fundamental of the, of the operational importance of providing an extraordinary experience. And so you can advertise all day long. And if that customer walks in and they don't, and you're, you're you know, lucky enough to get somebody to walk in the door based on your advertising, and they don't have that extraordinary experience, you might as well just flush the money down the drain. Yep. And yep. There's that famous quote, right? Mark, marketing of the thing can't make up for the thing. Right. Right. The, the thing itself <laughs> is going to be the best marketing for it, right? The, the iPhone doesn't need a commercial anymore. Right. Uh, because it's just that exceptional. It's that much better. Product. Yeah. Yep. 
Exactly. It's that much better than anything else out there. And so, you know, when we enter new markets, you know, we just, we hammer away at the importance of the operational system. So is there a longer timeline then um, to where you're turning a profit for a a franchisee in those new markets? There's, there's a little bit more lead time because you have to build that, uh, that loyalty. Absolutely. You know, it doesn't mean that the business won't work. Uh, We just have to make sure expectations are are aligned properly and that we always make sure that the franchise owner has additional capital available to support it as time goes. Uh, And we we try to be incredibly clear about that before they get involved. And and so, you know, expectation is such an important part of opening a new business. And, you know, I I write about it in my book extensively, which is that when you open a business, generally speaking, it's not going to perform the way you dream it's going to perform. And you need to make sure that your expectation is such that when it opens, you aren't disappointed with the result. Because once you have disappointment in the result, then at that point, that alters your attitude and the, the number one factor in the success of that business is your approach to it as the entrepreneur. I always think that the, the solution to this or, or one of the answers to this is being really clear, understanding what do you want out of this and, and making sure that like if those are two things or three things, whatever that is, that these are the things that can't budge. I need for it to be able to provide for my family. I need whatever that is. And then everything else, just be malleable, be flexible, go with the flow a little bit. Um, and then you'll, you'll understand where your true north is that, that any venture, right. Whether I go get a job, whether I, you know, franchise here, where I open up a restaurant, whether, whatever it is, um, it's got to provide these couple of things and then just being flexible with the rest of it, which I think is, uh, it's hard. It's hard to be flexible with quote unquote, the rest of it. <laughs> yeah. The rest of it, you know, well, I, I always, I, whenever I'm, t- I, I, I'm also fortunate to teach a class on entrepreneurialism. And one of the things I talk about is, you know, take your expectation on revenue, cut it in half, take your expectation around costs and double them. Yeah. If you still want to move forward. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little dramatic, right? And it's, it's, it's probably, you know, it's not, uh, it's, that's not linear thinking, but it sets the tone that this thing is going to be harder. It's going to take more money. It's going to take more effort than you think it's going to. Yeah, it's funny. I do a lot of uh, coaching for people looking to open their own restaurant because I've done, I don't know, eight or nine of them at this point. Um, And it's horrible. And I build a pro forma for them. And it's very easy because I just and I do a similar thing. I add 15 percent to the expenses and I subtract 15 percent from the revenue. And I see what color the the Excel spreadsheet then turns and said, like, this is so then find another find another way here because these are the numbers you have to make work. And if you can make the other number, if the other numbers end up happening, then great. We all but you've yeah. got to make these numbers work. And there's no way you can there's no way you yeah. can fake that. I agree. I agree 100 percent. So the world has changed a lot in the 26 years since you founded this company. Your business has evolved. I want to talk about this, uh, this new B cubed model that you guys have started just over the last two years. Let's say, first of all, I guess, explain to me what B cubed is and explain to the listeners. We have designed uh, with uh, uh, one of our franchise owners designed a modular drive-through, and so they're being manufactured uh, in a factory in Alpena, Michigan, and they they are loaded up on two uh, custom-designed uh, flatbed trucks, and and they get okay. delivered to a location. Uh, that location has to be prepped and ready, uh, but they unload the. Uh, with a crane, they unload the modular pieces, they bolt them down, and you're serving coffee within 
you know, 30 hours of, of the truck showing up. And so um, it's really been a, a, an incredibly um, exciting and have, there's a lot of interest in it uh, for sure in the world. The modular drive-through thing uh, has become hot. Uh, is post pandemic or within the sure. pandemic, we were just, you know, frankly, we were just sort of lucky uh, that we got onto that in advance of the pandemic. Um, and, right. and so we had our feet underneath us on this program. Uh, and so uh, coming out of the pandemic, there's just, there's been an enormous amount of demand for it. Uh, and, you know, we're installing these things. I think it's like two a week right That's now. Crazy. So then where do these go? So these are obviously, if you don't want to get a brick and mortar place, if you can't get a brick and mortar, you just get an open lot and these things get plopped in there. Explain to me about the, the ways you're utilizing these. Yeah, it's, I mean, really, uh, a lot of the big box retail in the world doesn't need the parking that they, you know, that they built. And so I think it's 16 parking spaces the standard parking spaces that this thing takes. And, and so we're really targeting these large retailers and we're approaching them about, you know, they, they all, most of them have really good real estate yeah. that we could, that we couldn't afford on our own. Right. We, it's, it's very difficult for us to buy a lot and, and build a, a building on it. Our, our business doesn't support that. Right. Our revenue doesn't support a $2 million investment in a building. Yep. Right. So, um, but this, this allows us to have a, a land lease uh, and, and they're, they're generally pretty inexpensive, surprisingly so. Yep. Uh, and in the, the building doesn't, doesn't, you know, uh, you know, the investment is about the same as it would be to outfit a, a vanilla white box. And so um, it's really an efficient way to land in really, really good real estate. And that's the key, right? Is we were able to access real estate that we wouldn't have been able to access otherwise. Right. So we're talking in, you know, a Target parking lot and a Costco parking lot, a Walmart, something people are coming, a Lowe's, this, these huge, massive, you know, parking uh, shopping centers, right? Yeah. And they're, they're really distinctive buildings. Like they really stand out. Yep. And so the visibility is very, very high. And so you're in a high traffic area and you've got this, basically this beacon, this sign, which is the building itself yep. uh, that attracts people to it. So, but you said it's about the same uh, startup cost, but the monthly overhead I assume is, is less because you're not paying the kind of rent that you would on a street corner. Is that true or false? Yeah, true. I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's less, um, it's not, uh, you know, I, 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 I wouldn't use that as a selling point to do it. Um, yep. but the, it, it is, it is less than that for sure. Less than what you'd pay at that location. Okay. So, so yes. Yeah, so for sure less than what you would pay if there were a four bay strip center and you were taking 1500 square feet with end cap with drive through for absolutely yep. less than that. Cause that is, you know, that's very expensive. Uh, and so yep. yes, the, the rent factor for that particular piece of dirt is, is definitely lower, but there's a ton of operational efficiency, right? And, and that's yeah. the part that, that we love, uh, is that, you know, they're 386 square feet. You know, basically you feel like you're stepping into a spaceship when you climb into this thing, you know, you yeah. have, you don't, you don't need as many, uh, employees, uh, to do the same volume as you would in a store. Yep. You don't have to maintain a dining room. You don't have to maintain bathrooms, right? So th there's a ton of efficiency in the drive-through only model. And so that's what it is. So it's only drive-through. Correct. Great. So what, so then I want to go back now two years and just, you said you were really lucky to have already been down this road when the pandemic hit. Where, where did this thing come from? What made you think like, <laughs> hey, this thing we're doing is already growing and, and it's going pretty great, but let's do something totally different. Where did that come from? Well, so uh, if we have a minute for a story, 
Um, yeah. So I was always anti drive through only. Right. And so I got okay. a little I got a little <laughs> egg on my face on this whole deal. Right. And I always thought that the dining room was critical. The ability to interact uh, within the dining room, within the store was really an important part of our business. And, and, it, and it was and it is. Uh, and so I was always resisted the, the drive through only. So we had a this franchise owner that I mentioned before. He wasn't a franchise owner, and he had tried through like three different ways to get to me uh, and my business partner to present this idea. And yeah, I'm ashamed to say I I never called the guy back. Uh, you know, I do get a ton of phone calls like that, right, or engagements yeah. around people with ideas, and so I never called him back. And so this guy goes ahead and buys one of our stores with the pure intent that if he's a franchise owner, then I got to call him back. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> and he did. And so he, he ended up buying one of our stores. Uh, and at that point, you know, he's part of our system. And, you know, I, I have a, a, a unwritten rule that I will, I will return a call to any franchise owner, if not within the hour, but for sure within 24 hours. Right. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, he was a new franchise owner. We called him back and then he came and presented the model. And, and it was so compelling and the building was so cool and he, you know, he had it all prototyped out, uh, that we, we said yes <laughs> and, and away he went and he built this, he's got a, I mean, I don't know, 120,000 square foot building. Uh, he's, he's looking at building another plant down in Southeast United States to, uh, to begin to expand more aggressively down there. Uh, it's just really, I mean, it's, it's an amazing story of entrepreneurship. The guys, the guy is tenacious, uh, you know, hey, he's brilliant. Uh, and yeah. so he, you know, that, that, that's what, that you hear these stories of these really successful franchise companies where the franchise, the franchisee brought, you know, sort of a, a concept changing, uh, idea. Yeah. Uh, I think this is going to be one of those stories in the end. I, I would, I would think so. So how many of these B cube do you have open now currently? Uh, as of, as of last week, I, th I think, it was 17 open. Okay. But they're, they're really starting to, we're really starting to get a bunch of momentum around them. There's two going in this week. Um, we have, we have 44 under contract to be opened right now. That's amazing. So then what, so then I want to use this as a launch pad to talk about kind of the future of the, or the current state of restaurant industry and franchising industry and coffee, you know, all these things. I think you're, I certainly equipped uh, to speak of, but where are we now and where do you see it going? And l let's talk big picture and then, and then drill back down and get micro uh, if we can. Oh, that was an open-ended question. <laughs> <laughs> I thought there was going to be something more specific there. Um, no, open-ended. I'm going to start with coffee, right? And, and because that's what I know and, that, and that's what I know well. You know, coffee is a product that is ubiquitous. Yeah, 70% of Americans drink it and so on. Now, we are definitely headed in the direction of convenience. That, that people need to be able to get a cup of coffee in the middle of their harried existence, right? And they need to be able to get it. They need to be able to get it quickly. They need to be able to depend on that they can get it quickly. And, and that's where this modular drive-through comes in, right? That, that this this drive-through only uh, concept yep. caters to that. I, I think that we're making a massive investment in the ability for the consumer to be able to order from wherever and then be able to stop in and pick up their drink, right? It's ha I mean, it's happening everywhere. This isn't, you know, everybody knows about it. Um, but one of the things that we're doing differently um, is, and it's half crazy or maybe more than that, 
is we're creating all of that technology ourselves. So yeah. we're going to own all of it, right? So we we do own our point of sale system now. We created that software. It's been rolled out for going on 30 months now. Uh, it's very very stable. It's been it's been a great move for us. Um, and then we're going to be bolting on uh, the you know the remote uh, ordering, right? So so the mobile ordering uh, piece of that, and and where that what the reason the number one reason we did that and i you, you may not like this but uh was to control our own data i love that and and so i that's um, all it, that's okay that's okay the whole but, ball game to me right is to is to you know the problem with using third parties is getting to your data in a clean way is very very difficult right yeah agreed. And, and so we're organizing this thing so we can have just these really uh, focused looks into our data. And, and I believe that in the end, that's going to make us more powerful in our, yeah. in our marketing and our decision-making. And so, so that's why we did it, right. Is, is we wanted to be able to control our own data. And then, and then also, uh, there, there was a marginal cost reduction to the franchise owner, but that, that wasn't really the, the point. My point is, is that convenience is going to be absolutely critical. So somebody goes on their phone, they hit their repeat order button, right? Yep. They know that it's going to be 12 minutes to get because they've done it for, you know, 38 days out of the last 50 days. And yep. so they hit the repeat order. They know they got their 12 minutes out. They show up, the drinks in the counter, they walk in, they grab the drink and they're on their way. And yep. so we, as an industry, we have to get very, very good at that because we're going to be competing against folks that are doing that well. And if you're not, you're going to get left behind. Which is really interesting because, you know, again, you brought up Starbucks earlier, but and I'm going to go back, you know, 1995 when you started. I mean, it was a different culture back then, right? We had <laughs> we, we were all watching Friends on TV, and these guys went and hung out at the coffee shop all day. That was the culture. I remember, you know, X and O then became Cozy, the original uh, Starbucks. You know, those there were all these, you know, places to lounge and sit. Um, and so it's a it's a departure now. Where, I mean, and it makes sense. We all know. But even the uh, even most Starbucks aren't set up for efficiency. Right. They, they you know, they drive you deep into the property, you know, to, to wire uh, to wire around this line to get your food. I mean, it's not it's not meant to like come in and, and you know, come and get your food and go um, just by just by their layout. So it's really interesting that you're talking about this and doubling down with these B cube things. What else? So talked about convenience. Talked about data and, and data ownership, which I firmly, firmly believe. Uh, no, I do not hate. I, I do not hate that you brought that up. I'm. I firmly believe that there are customers. We've done the hard work of, of bringing them to us. We get to know them. We should be able to um, to maintain that relationship. And it's all about building a relationship. What else? What else do you see coming down the pike? What, what else? Because you've shown us you, you're you're an oracle of sorts. What else do you see coming down the pike that that might not be on our radar. I'm going to quote you with my wife later today, by the way. <laughs> uh, so the piece that is on my mind right now and, and is that the remote work is going to change consumer behavior and explain what you, what, what, how you feel about people that. are going to need a place to get to get out of their house. They're going to need a place to have meetings. They're going to need a place to just connect. You know, I mean, uh, you, if you sit in your in your office, your home office all day, every day, you're going to need to get out and, and go work somewhere else and have, you know, have a meeting with a headset on in a, in a place with other people walking around. And so I don't think the dining room is going away, right? I really don't. I think that there is going to be a need, uh, for, you know, as soon as people feel 
feel safe or and and can can get out comfortably um that they're going to have the ability they're going to need the ability to connect uh physically and that's not going to go away so you know as much as i'm i am plugging away at the drive-through only which i think there's a huge demand for i yep. also think there is going to be a need so so let's say we we go uh to a market maybe maybe you know five out of six stores are drive-through only but we're going to have to have one out of six. And I don't know what the ratio will be in the end with a beautiful dining room where people can come and sit and yeah. have meetings and, and, and just generally hang out. So that's not, I don't think that's going to go away completely. Yeah. It's interesting. And that's something you have to think about as a franchisor, right. somebody who's figuring out, yep, you can have one of these, you can have, but no, now we need one of these here in this market. It's funny you brought this up because I, uh, this past weekend, the New York times ran a feature about, again, the death of shopping malls. And they really talked about how uh, the elite shopping malls are, are thriving, um, but that the the second tier and the third tier shopping malls are really dying. And I found myself thinking, like, what do you do with a JCPenney space or a Sears space? And I and I was thinking about re-envisioning it uh, like, a, um, uh, like a, a grand hotel lobby where there's all this public space where it's half food court Right. Where there's like actually like, you know, almost like a food hall style. But yet there's quiet little places you can, you know, it's something between a food court and a WeWork and and a coffee shop. And I just I found myself thinking they're like, you know, what are we going to do with these? And and a lot of people have turned these into, um, you know, high schools or like they've turned JCPenney's into high schools or they've turned shopping malls into like uh, doctor's offices or ambulatory like surgical centers or physical therapy, which makes sense. There's all this, you know, if you just need somewhere to walk or to, to ride a bike back and forth, there's wide yeah. open flat level spaces. Um, but I found myself thinking like people are going to need something closer to their home, but they can't be at home anymore. Or they just want to get out, but they don't want to drive the 45 minutes into the you know, into downtown. I think that's a, I think that's a really smart observation. Yeah. I, I've had, um, the idea for many years that I haven't executed cause I've been busy managing my own, <laughs> my, my own little enterprise here. But you know, the, the, one of the concepts that I developed was a, um, uh, a wine bar coffee shop with two distinct retail spaces, but with a combined kitchen and bathroom, right? So you're only building one, you're only building one kitchen. You only have one manager. You only have one office. Um, you've got a shared bathroom, uh, space, but then when you walk in, you're tackling two day parts. So you're, you've got the, the, the morning day part, obviously is the coffee, yep. the wine bar is the afternoon. And, and, you know, I, I, I think it's a million dollar idea, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I just haven't been able to, to, to invest the time and energy in it. Um, and, and so, but I, I think utilization of retail space is going to be really, I mean, it's going to be a big part of what happens And you know, these, these shopping mall operators, I mean, these are savvy people, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, and, and they're, I, they're going to figure it out. Right. And I it's totally going to be agree. interesting to see what they do. So here's the and here's the you know the the full circle moment. I think restaurants are a collection point. They are a meeting point. And totally. when we don't have offices anymore, which is the the typical meeting point, we're going to need other places even more. And I think we can really be at the forefront as an industry um, to be the solution to some of these problems that people just don't know they have yet. Right. Um, and I think that's right. That's the key in, in any sort of like innovative. Um, well, but you guys, innovative pursuit. you guys really focus on turns, right? And I say you guys as in restaurant tours, cause I, I, I don't perceive myself as a restaurant tour. We're more of a 
QSR concept, right? Like sure, but we, still restaurant. It is it's restaurant, yeah. But I, I mean, we don't. Somebody can sit at a table for five hours and we don't care, right? Because right. that that is not how we. You know, eighty percent uh, of our revenue goes out in the door, out the door, right? And so you know, you've got this small amount of revenue that is people buying coffees and sitting down. And so I just wonder, you know, if if I'm a, a, a if I own a full service restaurant. How am I thinking about turns at the moment? Yeah, but see, here's the so here's the problem there, right? Is that most restaurants and uh, people listening can fight me on this, but most restaurants worry about turns two nights a week, and probably about four hours a week, which is from about seven o'clock to about nine o'clock. That's when they care about turns on Friday night, and seven o'clock to nine o'clock on Saturday night. That's when they care about turns, and actually, not even so much on Saturdays because usually you've got. Um, you can open a little bit earlier than you could. People are willing to take those early reservations. Um, so you can get, you know, two and a half, three turns uh, in most restaurants on a Saturday night. So most restaurants aren't worrying so much about turns. It's about uh, acquisition. It's funny. I've got this like this triangle principle that I've developed years ago, which is that, you know, three pieces to marketing a restaurant, uh, attraction, retention and evangelism. And you spoke about this, you know, earlier in your you know what you were talking about, right? You need a, a reliable way to acquire new customers, to, to bring them in, to introduce yourself to the brand. You need a way to get them to become a repeat customer. You know, how are you going to inspire them to come back? Uh, and then evangelism, how are you going to get them to talk about uh, about their meal, right? That That's it. That's the whole ballgame. If you come up with a set of actions to attract, a set of actions to retain, and a set of actions to inspire these people to go spread the gospel, uh, then, then you're all set. Because I'm less worried about getting in another 20 covers on Friday night when I've got 200 covers that I can get in on Monday and Tuesday night. So that's the problem I'm always looking to solve. It's just yeah, cool. how do you get people, how do you maximize, you're paying rent seven nights a week, 24 hours a day. The very best restaurant concept would be a coffee shop in the morning, right? A lunch spot in the day, happy hour in the middle, a dinner spot, then it would turn into a nightclub till 2 or 3 in the morning. We'd shut down. We'd clean the whole place and open back up to serve coffee at 6 a.m. But we can't do that. Right? We, don't, we, don't, we don't do that. You're talking about you know, envisioning spaces, you know, shared spaces, so that you can, um, you know, you can uh, share your, uh, your utilities, share uh, some of the kitchen you know, stuff and, and all of that, and, and purchasing power and all of that. But being efficient, right? being more efficient with the overhead, um, I think, is one way forward. And we're still not maximizing our revenue. Because people want to go out when they want to go out. And I think there's a real opportunity and a danger here, right? There's a threat when people aren't going into the office anymore. Uh, how are you going to take out clients? How are you celebrating, right? If if we go say, oh, we'll meet for dinner after work. We'll, we'll celebrate our anniversary. We'll, we'll go in for dinner before we, uh, we go see a show. Well, if you're not going to be working five nights a week, do you really want to go down and see a show? It's like, oh, we got to schlep all the way down there. It's easy to leave the office at 5.30, get a bite from 6 to 7.30 and go see a Broadway show, go see a concert, whatever that is. So I'm really, I'm really thinking about how all of our routines are going to change because I don't, I don't think we know yet. We, don't, we know there's some meaningful percentage of people that are not going to return to the office, right? Whether that's 10%, 20%, 50% or more, uh, there is going to be some, even if it's 10%, that's a meaningful percentage. It's material. That's, yeah. that's, that's worth talking about. Um, how meaningful? I don't know, but, but I think we can all agree that, that things are changing, and I think we have, to, we have to look, and there's going to be opportunity here. It's funny, I'm reading uh, Peter Drucker's book. He wrote it, I don't know, back in 1984, I want to say, um, about innovation and entrepreneurship. And he some, some of the biggest successes, and he was talking about the, in the medical field, he said all these drugs that were um, 
that were uh, designed for people. And they didn't quite work as well, but veterinary uh, veterinarians ended up taking them and they worked like gangbusters there. And all these scientists were like up in arms as that's not what it was intended for. It's like, take the money and run to the <laughs> bank because there are still right. drugs. There are drugs that were developed in the 60s, 70s, and 80s that haven't been approved upon about how to treat horses and dogs and cats. Um, and yet they weren't for their, so the real purpose, right? The real opportunity here is seeing, I designed it for this. And again, again, to bring it full circle, we were talking about this earlier. I designed, I designed it for this, but actually this is a, is a more uh, efficient application of it. This is a more profitable application of it and staying open to the opportunity. That was the lesson I really took in, in reading through this book that's now, you know, almost 40 years old that like, like, like opportunity is, is, is being able to see something that you didn't, uh, that you didn't envision uh, at the, at the outset. And it's such a, such a hard lesson. You know, it takes being engaged broadly to make sure that you're seeing this stuff. Um, I, I teach here at the university in, in Ann Arbor and they do something, and I forget the name of it. It's got some cute, quaint little name where they, they take professors from different parts of the university and they schedule a lunch together and those two professors go and have lunch. Well, they ended up putting a professor from the engineering school together with, I don't know, a professor from geology or something. I don't know what it was. And yeah. they get together and this, this guy, this engineer had, had built this cable for space exploration. And this cable was, you know, stupidly strong and, and durable and so on. And the geology guy was like, I think there might be an opportunity here to sell that to mines. So they ended up putting a business together. And now like every mine in the world is using yep. this cable. And had, had those two people not come together, that would never have happened. Right. Yeah. And it's yeah. just fascinating to me that, that, you know, no one thought of it. Like the, the mining guy didn't think, hey, we need a better cable. And the, right. the guy that developed the cable didn't think, well, I bet this would be useful in mines. But yeah. they put they come together and they put together this amazing business around this innovative cable that yeah. changed, changed the mining industry. I love that. It's so great. I mean, observation and opportunity, they go hand in hand. It's my big takeaway. I've been reading this book very slowly, very meticulously over the last I'll say two weeks, and it's my big takeaway. Um, it's it's certainly fresh in my mind as I come to this conversation. Um, listen, Mike, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Um, tell me about your book. <laughs> well, you know, I I, uh, I joke around. It's like one part book, one part pamphlet, you know, um, which isn't really fair. It's a book. But uh, I, I wanted – I'm writing a series of books, um, and my final book is going to be in the space of, of – conscious capitalism and and the fact that we as leaders of enterprise have a real responsibility to improve what's going on in the world and we are leaders right we are the most powerful yep. leaders in the world people that run enterprise are the most powerful leaders in the world right in my opinion yep and, and can affect enormous change but but i also didn't want to just write that book and so i'm writing a series of books where the first book is about uh, entrepreneurialism. It's from concept to cash flow. What does your mindset need to be? How do you need to approach a new business? And that book is called Grind. Um, it's been out now since 2018. Um, I'm, I'm in the middle of writing my second book, which is a book on management. 
right? And it and it's going to encompass a lot of the standard thinking around management and leadership because I think a lot of yeah. leadership principles in the world are actually management, right? They're not leadership. A lot of leadership principles are about you know the efficient use of resources and how to motivate people to you know perform and so on. And so on. To me, that's all management, right? The third yeah. and then the third book is going to be uh, a tr- a book truly on leadership, which is about how to how to improve the world, how we as leaders have a responsibility to improve the world. But, but book one, uh, book two is almost written. I've committed to have it done by the end of this month, the manuscript done by the end of this month. Hopefully it'll come out next year. Uh, but book one is called Grind. It's right here. I got a copy of it. And uh, it's really just a, a very fundamental look at what it takes to be a successful entrepreneur. I love it. We're going to include the link in the show notes. And hopefully uh, when you're ready to release the second book, we can have you on and we can talk all about management and how it's different than leadership, because I think that's uh, very appropriate uh, to an industry that deals uh, almost exclusively with people. We employ people. We take care of people. Um, we uh, we purchase things from people. It is it is a people business. Um Mike, where can people go to learn more about Big B Coffee? Where can people go to learn more about uh, the franchising opportunities that are available with Big B? Sure. You know, BigB.com, it's got two G's, so B-I-G-G-B-Y.com. And, you know, there's a, if you want to learn more, I mean, there's just a link there, and, and one of our people will reach out. And, you know, we still do the weird thing of, like, making phone calls and trying to talk to people about stuff. And so, I like that. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that is, there's a ton of information on the website, too, uh, Plus, you know, we've got a pretty significant social media uh, presence. And so you can learn a lot about what we've got going on uh, through the through the handles on social media. And uh, but, you know, I think that if, if you're serious about wanting to learn more about the company, then, you know, go to the website and 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 review it and then fill out the form and we'll reach out to you. Amazing. So we got the link to the book that's going to be in the show notes. We got the link now to Big B. Uh, we'll make sure that's in the show notes so you can go to learn more about the company, the franchising. Uh, Mike, I so appreciate you taking the time today. Any last words of wisdom for the audience before I let you go? <laughs> uh, you know, I think that uh, the number one, uh, I get asked all the time, you know, how do we get the business to where it is today? And the, the one, one word that I always uh, lean on in that, when that question is asked is focus. So I've been waking up every day for 26 years trying to sell one more cup of coffee tomorrow than I did today. And, and that is, is what we do. It's everything that we spend our time on. And, you know, entrepreneurs are notoriously distractible, but you can't be. You cannot be. You have to stay focused on your core product, making your core product better, understanding your consumer better. That is, uh, that is to me, that is the answer. And then if it doesn't work, you know what? Fold up shop, move on and go to another idea, right? Uh, but stay focused on your core product, being the best you can possibly be at providing that. Uh, and, you know, to me, that's the recipe for, for building, a, building a startup. I love it. That sounds like a really great place to end. Mike, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to chat with me today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Chip. It's been great. Have a great day. Thank you. Once again, I hope you got something out of this encore presentation of my interview with Mike McFall. It aired way back on episode 138. We're replaying it today because I think a bunch of you guys out there maybe uh, have never heard it. And maybe if you did, it was worth revisiting. Smart guy, uh, packed with insights, and he's just only too happy to share. Uh, links to his book, links to Big B Coffee, all of that are in the show notes. And again, one final reminder, my book comes out tomorrow. The Restaurant Marketing Mindset. You can get it anywhere you get your books. You can even order it online directly from me, therestaurantmarketingmindset.com. I appreciate all the support and I will see you guys next time.